Federal employees, no less than people in other occupations, sometimes have to deal with pain resulting from injuries. In recent years, many of them have become addicted to opioids. Thanks to the work of my next guest, over the past five years, the number of federal employees using opioids has dropped by 58%. For his work, he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Antonio Rios, the Division Director of Federal Employees Longshore and Harbor Workers Compensation at the Department of Labor, joins me now. Mr. Rios, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. And let's just briefly, so we can set the scene here, the Division of Federal Employees Longshore and Harbor Workers Compensation. That seems like a funny combination. Yes. So the division administers three federal workers' compensation statutes. And as a division director, I am the administrator of those three laws. It used to be two different programs, but they combined it in 2020 into one division. So it is funny because there are two separate statutes. There's three in total in the division, but I oversee all three. But basically, it's workers' comp for these particular types of individuals. Correct. The different laws provide workers' compensation protections to roughly 30 million federal and privately employed workers. The bulk of that is about 2.5 million federal employees. The rest are maritime employees, as well as contractors that work for the United States outside of the United States. All right. So we understand the combination of longshoremen and federal employees. (laughs) But let's get to the real issue here, and that is that you decided to take on the opioid use issue. How did this all work? Tell us what you did here. Well, Tom, it's an incredibly complex issue that involves a lot of different players, from the prescribers to the pharmacies and ultimately to the patients who are taking the opioids. It's not an epidemic that was created overnight, and understanding the multiple facets around it was critically important in order to come up with a solution. So when I first came into the program, new opioid prescriptions were given to injured workers way too often, and they lasted too long. And that led to many of them taking opioids long-term and at really high doses. So in 2017, for example, we had roughly 20,000 injured federal employees actively taking opioids. So because the problem took a long time to create, the solution had to be multifaceted. And the first thing that I felt was a priority was that we needed to stop the bleeding, meaning stop the new folks from becoming dependent on these drugs. So in collaboration with some of the best experts in opioid overuse, with our team of physicians and pharmacists, we instituted pharmacy control. So for initial recipients of opioid prescriptions, we began requiring prior authorization and a letter of medical necessity for all new prescriptions that exceeded a certain time frame. Now, the time frame changed over the course of a period of four years. But now we auto-approve your initial opioid prescription, but it can't be for more than seven days. You can continue to get additional seven-day prescriptions, but only until you reach day 28. At that point, your doctor is required to explain why extended use of opioids is necessary. Sure. I guess in many cases, the practice has been to simply throw a bottle of a couple of hundred of them at a patient and say, here you go. And it was kind of sloppy in the way these types of drugs were prescribed. That's exactly what we found. And we knew that the first issue that we needed to address was to stem, you know, the population from growing. But once we turned our attention to the folks that had been taking opioids for several years, we realized that it was a tough issue to address. So we first started breaking the group of 20,000 into different categories. We developed a morphine calculator to assess 
the dosages of opioids that each person was taking on a daily basis. And based on that, we grouped them into different risk categories. Obviously, the ones taking higher dosages were at highest risk. We then began communicating with the patients themselves and also with their prescribers, because in some instances, folks were getting prescriptions from multiple prescribers. So what we would do is we would write to the prescribers, especially if there were multiple ones and everybody was copied on the letter, and we would let them know, did you know that patient X is receiving a prescription from you and also from a different prescriber? Now, those are the outlier cases, but what we were trying to do is we were trying to be as transparent as possible and just letting them know that they were exceeding the CDC guidelines for dosages and that the prescription timeframes were extended. So what we did is we asked most physicians if there was any indication for a treatment plan that would be reducing the high dosage of opioids that they were prescribing. We also afforded alternative therapies to pain management. And when someone was prescribed higher doses than what they were already taking, we would ask the pharmacy to contact our pharmacist. And then at that point, we had pharmacists at the ready who would personally evaluate that person's case, look at their medical records in real time. And if necessary, they would contact the physician and engage them in that dialogue to see if the increase in opioids was absolutely indicated based on the examination. We're speaking with Tony Rios. He's the Division Director of Federal Employees, Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation at the Department of Labor and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And were other agencies dealing with this, and I'm thinking specifically of Veterans Affairs, which has also an organized program to try to reduce opioid use and addiction, was their practice something that you looked at or discussed with them? What we did is we commissioned a study to look at the different controls that different states and different federal organizations had instituted and to see which worked and which didn't. In addition to that, we worked with HHS, also the CDC, to make sure that we were utilizing the latest techniques in addressing the pandemic. So yes, we looked at basically anybody who had instituted any controls, we had analyzed whether those controls worked or not. And I guess one of the theories behind this methodology that you've described, and which is similar to what I think VA has done, and that is that the opioids in general, and for most people, are only indicated very early after an injury or after some type of surgery then you can reduce it and go to alternative methods as soon as possible. You can still mitigate the pain, but also avoid the danger of opioid addiction. Correct. And we are not in the business of telling physicians how to treat their patients or what to prescribe them. We simply gently reminded them about what the CDC's recommendations were and also required them to provide a medical rationale whenever they extended the duration of the opioids. All right. So that was in 2017. This got underway. What have the results been so far? The active opioid uh, user population that was at roughly 28,000 is now at just around 12,000. So that's a 59% reduction. And of the active users, is it possible to discern what percentage is actually addicted versus those just using it properly and can quit when the time comes? Well, I don't like to use the word addicted. There's opioid overuse, and we've segmented them into those that have been taking them for 60 days, for 90 days, a year, and two years and more. And what we're doing is, because we still have a population of 12,000, we're working actively with their physicians to try to develop a treatment plan that will wean them off. But 
for some of these folks, they've been taking these drugs for years. And based on the dosages, they have already developed the dependency on it. And if there is not an obvious increase for an overdose, we're not going to push the physicians to take more of an aggressive treatment plan. And let's talk about you for a minute, because uh, this is not something that, as the director of a program for Workers' Comp, it's just one element. How did you come into this work? Tell us a little bit about your federal history and how this came to be something that was important to you. Well, nobody grows up thinking that they want to run a workers' comp program for the federal government. (laughs) And frankly, as a migrant farm worker who worked in the fields until the summer that I went to Marine Corps boot camp in San Diego, I would never have thought of having a position with this much responsibility. My ambitions to become a career Marine ended when I was discharged from the military for being gay. And while it was traumatic and sad and embarrassing at that time, it was the best thing that ever happened to me, both personally and professionally. With nothing but a high school degree and my military occupational skills, I refused to go back to Texas and scoured the one ads until I found the perfect job hosting. I put on my prom jacket and I went on this interview and I landed a job at a law firm that specialized in representing injured workers. Before you know it, I was negotiating settlements with insurance companies and then I started working for an insurance company. And this was all in the beautiful state of Hawaii. I eventually moved to D.C. and Everybody who is in D.C., or at least a large portion of the population here, works in the federal government. So I applied for a federal job, and I started with the Department of Labor about 29 years ago. Wow. That is quite a story. Well, we're glad you are where you are now, and I guess one door closes and others open. Tony Rios is the Division Director of Federal Employees, Longshore, and Harbor Workers' Compensation at the Labor Department. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. And he's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, 
He took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so 
I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Ladies and gentlemen, we need you. The Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks is looking for you to help support veterans, help with youth scholarships, and be a force in your community. Being a member of the Elks is where you can do all this and much more. We are 31 lodges strong across the state of Iowa. Help pass on our principles of charity, justice, brotherly love, and fidelity. If interested, go to elks.org and use the lodge locator to find a lodge near you. Elks care. Elks share. Brought to you by the Iowa Elks Association.